Hello, I'm Ravdi Bagri, terrible name. Most people call me by my online handle, Stoutfish. We are living now in interesting times. The world is held in bondage by uncertainty, with seemingly no path to find solutions for the pressing issues of the day. It is a transition point in history. This podcast makes some base assumptions that we will live through the consequences of climate change and growing scarcity. We will experience political upheavals that will most likely leave society more cruel and chaotic. This podcast isn't really about the issues, though, but about how we live in the new modern era. What's important? What should we throw away? What are we in control of and what choices can we make? We may just find that it is brightest before dusk. Episode 1, Alienation. You might have heard this word thrown around in online discourse, but what does it mean? Alienation is the state of being estranged from structures such as social groups or work. It is the lack of identity and connection to what should be core aspects of our lives. Some of us struggle to connect to other people. Most of us have to work for a living. A lot of us work or have worked shitty jobs. Jobs you may have no real investment or connection to. Jobs you would rather not be working, leaving you with less time for the things you actually care about. So, how do we navigate these aspects? I'm joined by my guest today to talk about this topic. Please introduce yourself. Hi, my name is E.E. Uh, e. Sharp. I'm a trans woman, science fiction author, amateur author. Uh, but we'll go by Lizzie for the sake of this. And I'm not going to change my voice because I'm very bad at it right now still. In any case. Um, so... I've known Stout here for quite a while, and I have whined about or chatted about this particular subject at many points, which is why I think you invited me on, correct? Yeah, I I like the things you've said. You've uh, changed my mind about how I think about this topic. Good. Uh, There's there's like several aspects for it. Uh, How how do you want to approach the subject? What do you want to talk about first? I would like to talk about um, a revelation I've had of how I changed my mind on, you know, really what allowed me to internalize what this really was. Uh, There was a period of my life where I was extremely upset that uh, Mm -hmm. I felt like I had no connections to people in the real world. I discounted the connections I've had to people in online spaces, and I said oh, it's my own personal fault that I have no friends. And he sort of uh, sat me down and explained to me, well, that's not necessarily the case. Yeah, there's a lot that's structural when it comes to to having real-life friends, and especially right now here, uh, years later in pandemic time, it's even more stark how much uh, systemic pressures and realities sort of shape our uh, public exposure and thus our relationship to 
uh, real life friends. I haven't seen some of my real life friends in a year now, and I've mostly spent my time online. It's definitely difficult to recognize the water when you're swimming in it, so to speak. And it's definitely difficult to recognize the alienation you're suffering, especially when your only points of comparison are usually fiction. And in fiction, we usually imagine groups of characters with tight-knit interactions. Uh, That model or ideal, or even sort of the idea we get of it from social media really permeates our understanding of what our lives should look like. And when the systemic effects prevent our lives from looking that way, we we get pretty upset. Uh, I myself used to be terribly upset about it, and it took a lot of thought to to sort of escape right. and I, that conclusion. And I feel like um, that sort of externality is sort of pushed on the individual, that the only way that we can perceive such problems is through individual actions and not even recognize uh, how the structure affects, you know, our experiences. Right, which is an absurd thing because think about a really simple situation. Imagine someone who's working two jobs to uh, stay in an apartment. They have 80 hours of their week taken away from them and they're probably sleeping because they're dead tired from working two jobs. And at that point, they will sort of separate from their family and friends. There's no way they can actually put in the active effort to maintain those social contacts. Now, I'm sure that once they reintroduce themselves to the lives of friends and family, that they'll be accepted right back. We don't lose friends instantly when we don't speak to them. But there is a sort of decay. And and we tend to feel that as part of the loneliness that come and alienation that comes with uh, modern work. And, and for that extreme example, it's clear that the systemic effects are responsible. The person cannot avoid working two jobs. There's a lot of, of say, you know, sort of shuffling of the deck saying, oh, well, the person should go find a better paying job. But that itself requires time or education, which also requires time. And that time isn't available to the person nor do they have infinite energy to care or to put in effort to change their situation. Um, you know, attention and, and care are finite resources. I, I wish I could con sort of quote offhand what the chemistry was. I'm pr- pretty sure it's norepinephrine, but essentially you can only care so much in a day and uh, with phones at hand and the constant tragedies around us and with, the alienation we suffer in our lives, it gets really easy to to spend all of our care and then have nothing left to, to put in individual actions that might remediate the alienation we suffer, right? It's like, oh, well, if they took their one day off of the week and went down to the gym and with gym friends, they'd have connections or something like that. And that's probably true, but you've probably been in a state and I've definitely been in a state where mentally that simple task feels impossible. And that's because you've run out of care. You have an executive dysfunction and you can no longer put forth that effort. You want to stay where you are, which I mean, sorry to ramble here for a moment, but if you think about what you are, you're a, a, 
endurance hunting omnivore, a megafauna, between like four and six feet tall, probably. And you're supposed to sit around and vibe most of the day because, boy, is that an expensive body. Have you ever seen how little a cat or a dog eats compared to you? There's a reason for that, right? And so the idea that we should be working all the time, well, we're, we're definitely capable of the endurance, but if we don't have to, we seem to be made to sit around. And there's definitely some aspects of our biology that lean towards that. In any case, uh, when we talked about alienation back in the day, the main thing I talked about, I think, and correct me if I'm wrong, was how public space has been taken away from you at a historical scale to the point where you were born into a world without those public spaces or at the tail end of its degradation. And you can see this in culture, the idea of teens hanging out at the mall, a very 80s idea, early 90s idea, uh, that was very real. I would go down to uh, Highland Mall here in Austin, Texas, and there would literally be 100, 150 plus people milling around, many of them just sitting in the food court, you know, sipping on sodas or whatever and, and just wasting time on the weekend or in the summer. That's gone. What are you supposed to do that's free, that fills that sort of role? Well, I mean, for us, it's the online space. We sit out in a, you know, a group Zoom chat or a Discord or an IRC room or a forum, or we, we post with our circle on Twitter. It's whatever we can do to sort of stimulate that social part of our brain over and over uh, to avoid that sort of, of loneliness or isolation. And it goes back much further. If you go back 50 years, it was common to drink on street corners. The whole uh, brown bag exception to law, basically boiled to like prohibition laws, basically boiled down to we need to make sure that people can still hang out with their friends after work. And the way they do that is they'd go down to the street and drink with each other, usually at the corner. You can still see echoes of that in media. Again, you know, King of the Hill. They go out behind in the alley and drink every day. We, we don't have that anymore. The outside space has been eroded. Uh, kids don't even play outside very often, except in highly controlled or, or uh, secure environments. It's, it's not even that the situation is dangerous anymore. It's actually less dangerous now than it's been, well, excluding the pandemic. It's less dangerous criminally now than it has been in 40 years, but nevertheless, the culture that was developed in the eighties saying your children shouldn't play outside. It's dangerous. There are strangers out to pick them up, take them away in a van, you know, uh, lure them with candy, as they say, uh, that wasn't very real in the first place, but it, it had a very real impact. And so uh, how, how old are you, Stout? Just if, if you want to say. I'm 28. Okay. By the time you were born, if you weren't living in the countryside or in a very nice sort of homogeneous suburb neighborhood, uh, it was very difficult. Uh, there was a large amount of effort being put into uh, 
sort of controlling the streets, especially in poorer regions where there was a lot of people still going outside to do things. Um, the criminalization of the streets has reached such a point where I would walk around in the early aughts like an idiot in the middle of the night. And I was a night owl. And every few days, the police would stop me and ask what I'm doing. And I wasn't in a particularly bad area. I'm white. I was perceived as masculine. It was all the privilege that I needed to walk away from those situations with just a quick chat with the officer. But the officer still checked in. And that sort of omnipresent uh, scouring, which you know almost certainly has had a, a greater effect on, on people of color, that was tremendously oppressive, and it's only gotten worse since then. And in the places that you got to replace those things, uh, when the streets sort of dissipated, you have bars, you have organized events like music or movies. Uh, you have restaurants where you go out and eat with your friends. That one's still very common, right? People go and uh, take, you know, six friends out for pizza. I see them all the time here at, at uh, pizza places in Austin. Pizza and pub. And that's where they're finding their social time, but it's costing them money. And so if you're young or poor, especially if you're a millennial or younger, uh, you may not have that money. That may be a terrible financial decision. And so you don't do that. And again, all of this is very rambly, but the point is, is that over time, the socioeconomic factors and sort of social design of the urban cityscape have taken away everything except for the, the autonomous individual's uh, home and places they'll pay for. And even your home is expensive. And usually, unless you're staying with friends as roommates, the ideal is not even to be staying with people, but to be staying alone. Right? When What do we, we encourage structurally is people to have their own apartments. Which, again, we're talking on grand scales. It's not something just restricted to the United States or to the West or, or to the East or something like that. But, but on, on the scale of human history a lot more people lived in highly contained spaces prior to the 20th century and the 21st century. Uh, British manners in the Victorian era usually contained the family, the extended family, the previous generation, the children, right? Any uh, spinsters or widows, any bachelors, a large number of people would usually come to visit in these places. Again, these are very rich people, but you can see that even for this very wealthy elite, oh, and don't forget that, of course, their servants and those families, uh, even the very wealthy elite lived in spaces that were largely highly integrated and had a lot of people around them at all times. Similarly, uh, you know, long homes in many cultures where 30 to 40 people sleep in the same room each day. And, you know, those people are used to it, of course. So some people wake up in the middle of the night, they'll talk, they'll sing, they'll play a drum or whatever. And, and the others sleep through it because they're used to it. That tended to be the norm until 
we needed families to be in units for plots of land. Once we have that, even those family units tended to be very large, right? You look at the farmer family with nine sons or whatever, uh, having a prosperous time. Uh, you know, our, our school law uh, back in the 80s and 90s was, you know, you're off for the summer. That was a relic of that era where you had a huge farming family and they needed to go do work in the you know late summer and early fall to make sure a harvest happened. None of those things are really true that for very many people anymore. Uh, you know, very few people live in long homes. Very few people live in extended family units. You live maybe with your atomic family, and and atomic does not refer to the atom bomb, but rather to like the sorry the nuclear family. That's the actual term. Uh, the nuclear family does not refer to nuclear as bomb, but rather nuclear as a nucleus, a centralized thing in an atom. And maybe you eventually moved in with a couple flatmates in college who were taken away from you when they all had to go get different jobs in different places or, or finish their degrees. And if you got lucky and found somebody, uh, you know, maybe you moved in with that person, your partner or, or a lifelong friend or whatever. But ultimately, none of those things encouraged you to collect new friends. At every step, they only introduced new separations from the people you used to be around. And it offered no natural new public avenues for you to meet new people, except for the internet for a lot of us nowadays. And then, of course, everybody tells you that your internet friends aren't real, even though you're having heartfelt conversations with them about your life. Conversations you probably have more easily with them than you would with a, a therapist because they're just a stranger on the internet, right? They're not real in any case. The thesis of this sort of long rant should be the world is no longer set up to encourage you to find other people and you don't always have the energy to find them. So when you find yourself alone or isolated, you shouldn't beat yourself up. You can do things about it, sure. You should try to do things about it. I bet it'll make you happier if you do. But you shouldn't punish yourself with guilt or incredible self-hatred because a lot of that wasn't your choice. In another era, you would have just naturally had people around you without any effort because there was nothing else to do except to be around others. And that's, I think, my little rant about alienation. Wow, that was pretty good. I'm glad, I'm glad. Um, <laughs> I was, uh, it's something I've put a lot of thought into. Yeah, I was listening intently. That was a, a great uh, speech. And I was able to relate to, you know, step-by-step step parts of my life. I'm like, ah, oh, yes, that was true. That did happen. Yes, yes. Um, yeah. Um, even if your experiences don't line up with that 100%, it's, you know, you know, still very applicable. Yeah. It, there's always like individual variations or things that we think we're especially responsible for. Uh, what, if you don't mind divulging, kind of what experiences did you have? Um, well, I have had some experiences living in an extended family. 
uh, being around other family, uh, extended, uh, you know, like atomic family units that, you know, I was able to integrate myself into during childhood. We had, uh, I used to play in the park and then the cops would like tell you, please leave the park. And then we played, uh, in a, (laughs) in abandoned housings and then we just played video games. But, um, yeah, I spent a lot of time with, um, cousins until, you know, college happened. And right. And a lot of that childhood experience, I think, is related to the fact that your parents need to get rid of you sometimes because, you know, children are difficult to be polite. And uh, sometimes your mom or your dad needs a break and sending you off to a friend's house or letting them go off and hang out with a friend you know is OK. It's an easy way to get some spare time for yourself. So. But yeah, go ahead. Now, uh, kids pretty much only, you know play video games and i think that makes their immediate social circle smaller they're only playing video games with like uh, a few people they're not like running in the park with 12 other kids so right you know uh your social life from step to step keeps getting smaller and smaller you know i had a a a very uh good friend in the college dorms but you know he moved back to his homeland and haven't really been able to talk to him so i don't really have any college friends so i only really have my online friends who i've been friends with for like eight years now (laughs) yeah i mean they're they're your pack right they're your clan or whatever you want to they're real your tribe that's the word we should use a tribe but uh i think the problem with video games is that you're looking for people who are very interested in the game that's why they're playing with you. And only sometimes does that person become someone who wants to just spend time with you in general. Outside of the game, yeah. Outside of the game, yeah. And so it can be difficult to sort of form friendships inside those context, uh, inside that context unless the game is very relaxed and, and sort of allows people to, to wander away from the win-loss conditions that would otherwise motivate them to, to ignore social time and care about the objective in whatever multiplayer game they're playing. Um, it's one of the reasons I think, God, am I going to speak about video games in particular? <laughs> I think something like when, when people play Dota, um, it's actually very antisocial. It's, like, it's very stressful. You try and play with friends because you're trying to reduce the stress. But you don't make new Dota friends usually. You take uh, friends and you strain the relationship to play Dota because it's so competitive. Right? right. It's so difficult to mess around because if you play instead of play to win, uh, you you harm everybody else's experience. Compare that to to something like um, Gary's mod. In which everything is pure play and there's almost no objectives unless somebody made one up to show off what they could do with a piece of you know code. Uh, and so you end up with, with, you know, Python code or whatever. So you end up with people. Uh, doing RPG stuff on a server or just running around building structures. And that's highly social. And people made lots of friends through Gary's Mod. Uh, Team Fortress 2, another game that was fairly casual in its heyday. And so a lot of people sort of made friends through that. Um, you know, League, opposite direction, very much like Dota. You can you could sort of sort games like that. I think um, this is why a lot of people actually flock to Twitch communities, right? 
because then you can actually find everybody who cares about your favorite game. You can find someone who's really good at it and is a good entertainer to listen to, who feels like a friend, a parasocial relationship, as they say. And everybody there will talk about the thing you're interested in or share with you in the experience you all just had. And it's usually free, though lots of people throw their money at it to be more important in it. And so I think, I think you're really apt to say that video games have become sort of a central locus. Uh, I do think people are trying to prevent the video game from being an isolating thing, though, through these other tools, through Twitch, through uh, Discord servers about it, through things like that. Yeah, and but these these tools we use are owned by, uh, you know, a centralized. They could be charged for. Yeah, yeah, a centralized organization that doesn't necessarily have the same interest as you do, and you know, it could always be taken away. It's very precarious. These uh, sort of uh, programs we use, and, and a lot of it also, like you can already see the the eroding happening at the edges in other communities. Uh, a lot of people sort of don't pay attention to the slow march of, of destruction of not safe for work content on social media sites. But over the last decade, essentially, Apple has waged a slow war to remove uh, important apps from the App Store. And since most people on Earth browse uh, on their phones and not on a PC, that actually losing your App Store rights is, is massive. It's destructive. And so you listen to what Apple says, and Apple says remove for the sake of our advertisers, any not safe for work content. And so websites that grew off of sex work and not safe for work communities and things like that, then get gutted and sort of a, a, you know, a shallow advertisable remainder is left, but everybody has to move on to the next one and the next one. And eventually those two could be gutted and there may not be somewhere to run to in the end. If it doesn't make somebody money, then it may not be supported in these social media situations. Or the places that you run to are so small and so obscure that uh, you're only sharing, you're sharing the same picture of Sonic to the same five people. On my- <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes, exactly. Like, you know, and that's also part of the internet fragmentation. People get hyper specific. They form micro communities uh, and micro micro communities. Uh, around these things. It's actually what Discord is so successful about because, you know, I'm in like 40 Discords. And in a sense, I've joined, at least tentatively, 40 little bitty communities to be a part of. Now, clearly, I'm only really active in like two or three. But that, yeah, I think I think you really nailed it. That hyper fracture, that like, I don't want to call it fracturing. Those tiny bubbles that we break off into are uh, almost echo chambers in their own sense. They are not conducive necessarily to finding the sorts of relationships that would take care of your alienation or your isolation or your loneliness. I mean, I think just to speak out something, you know, I, I don't know if you watch sports. I definitely don't anymore. I did when I was very young. Sports is a really common way for people to form these sort of ad hoc fan groups that have something they all care about together, that have a reason, a scheduled reason to get together and enjoy something as a group, you know, drinking alcohol, eating food, watching the big game. 
and that's allowed because, you know, advertisers love that kind of centralized attention. And because I think sports, you know, speak to something really primal in most of us about what we want out of, out of the games we play, right? The safe violence, the, uh, the, the no fatality war of the sports battlefield. That's a terrible term, but, uh, that is, I think a big source of how people find friends these days is, is in fandom like that or in anime fandom. Christ's sake. I just said the word fandom fanfic, uh, is another, like I know several people whose entire, uh, online relationships are entirely based off of fanfic together. And I'm in one, I was invited to one of those servers, even though I don't actually write fanfic myself. Uh, because I wrote fiction and they were like, oh, you'll appreciate this. You know, you've watched this anime or read this manga. Here, look at this. This is really clever. And usually, you know, of course, it actually is really clever. Some of these people are incredible, uh, toiling in obscurity on free content. But I think, I think that also explains why people tend to build tribes around media in the same way they do sports. Like, oh, I'm a Star Wars fan or a Star Trek fan or... You know, anything that's both consumerist and common and has like a, a potential social aspect draws in a lot of people and is acceptable and stable because it's consumerist, because somebody can make a quick buck off of it. And that's pretty bleak to say, I know. Yeah, that's sort of the tragedy of fandom is that uh, you don't really own it you know you invest so much emotional energy into it so much of your time but it's not ever yours and it can right. go and you know and you have a, a need to expect something from it and it could never give it to you and that only creates uh, frustration and tension yeah i was gonna say to cycle back to the earlier question uh, i cut you off about the time of ending college to get on another tangent, I actually wanted to hear the rest of the story because I think you were out of college by the time I talked to you about the subject. Yeah. What was happening? What situation were you in? Uh, I just wasn't really going anywhere in life and I hadn't accomplished anything recently and I wasn't speaking to anyone, you know, sort of a, a doldrum yes. of the life period. Yes. I called them the gray uh, months. I, I, after my grandmother died, I spent nine months that I can barely remember and nothing important was done. I might have beaten Mass Effect 2 like six times or something, but that's about it. Well, how did you get out of that situation? Or, or are you in some sense still in it, but better at coping with it? That's fine too, actually. Yeah, I just um, got better at coping with it. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, that's that's genuinely the truth, right? You know, your your brain uh, continues to develop and it becomes more stable all the way up to your 28th and you're able to uh, better sustain such emotional uh, strain. Yeah, and, and also I think, I mean, given that we're doing a podcast, I think you've embraced the fact that online friends are real friends, that you actually have like sort of social context with them or social relationships that, was, so that are real. That was definitely a big thing. You know, I was like, uh, oh, <laughs> I, I got more into, I or I started playing uh, tabletop RPGs online uh, with people. Oh, such a good solution too. Yes. Lots of people do that. It's a really good way of dealing with it. Yeah. Um, you know, uh, it's a scheduled thing you can look forward to with other people. 
Uh, I got better at forgiving myself. Uh, I learned a yes. single skill. That was pretty cool. <laughs> even even a poorly learned skill feels fantastic. It really, and I, I'm not judging your skill. I'm, I'm not entirely sure what you're referring to. I think I have ideas. I don't, I'm not going to worry about it. It doesn't matter. My, my point is that um, it definitely adds something when you go out and try to attain mastery. And that's why that's something, you know, people say, oh, get a hobby. Well, what, what they forget is that getting hobbies is really damn hard. You have to work yeah, extremely hard. Your brain feels pain when you try to learn something new and you have to get over that for a few months. <laughs> yeah. And, you know. So here's something. If, anybody, if anybody's listening, I want you to know the secret that they've actually discovered for making a habit, which is no cheat days. Because what everyone says is, oh, you've done so great for a week or two weeks now. Take a day off. Relax. And that sounds great. It's a reward. Should reinforce it, right? That's not how the brain works. Doing the action and not doing the action are both habitual. If you do the inaction, if you choose to skip it, you know, that is testing out the new habit of not doing it. Literally. And since it's really easy to not do things, boy, that habit takes fast. You spend two days off. Oh, I was really busy this day. You spent three days off while I had this other thing to do. And quickly the habit breaks down. Now, it doesn't mean that once the habit's established, you have to work every single day at it, though I do think that's a really effective technique. But uh, I think that if you want to learn a skill, you should set aside 60 to 90 days where you're going to try a little time every day. You don't have to set like a productivity goal, but like a time goal. I'm going to spend 30 minutes on this and just routinely hit that 30 minutes of real effort on that. And if you do that, then after 60 to 90 days, it will be effortless to participate in that hobby. And then, then you can play with it. Or maybe not. Maybe you don't enjoy it anymore and you want to quit and that's fine too. But like, if you don't give it that time, then it can never be a habit and you can never really begin to sort of uh, develop a technique or a craft. So don't take cheat days in your first 60 to 90 days. Don't skip. Make a real genuine habit. No cheat day. All right. So to sort of tie the podcast together, what kind of goals can we set? Uh, understanding that, you know, we may not have as much time as uh, we think we do, uh, you know. Right. Thir 30 minutes is a lot of time and people feel like it's very little, right? Oh, I'll just spend two hours exercising and that's just, there's no time for anything else it feels like because there's all this time sucked up. Um, okay. I think for, I should divide it in my, my like really complicated, Sorry, my very complicated answer should be given in two parts. First is work. Uh, work is extremely alienating for obvious reasons. Your boss is not your friend. And if you, you think your boss is your friend, sometimes you end up with a rude awakening later on when corporate structure decides that, you know, friendship doesn't matter. And your boss has to be your boss first. Not that it's bad to be friends with your boss, but like don't rely on it. Um, 
Same with your coworkers. Like, you know, if you quit that job, how many of those coworkers do you really think you're going to go and hang out with again? Maybe none. Or you'll find yourself with a new schedule or going to a new location and there won't be any time anymore to go visit that person. Again, this isn't saying you shouldn't be friends with anybody at work, but rather um, it's not going to naturally develop into something that is camaraderie or not alienating. And often, uh, at least for me, I, I worked call center jobs, which were extremely alienating because then it's factory work for human emotions. And woof, that's hard. I say it that way because by that I mean you spend a lot of time calming other people down, who for them, this will be the one 10 minutes today that they did the really stressful thing of calling the phone company or the internet company. But you're going to do that six times this hour sometimes eight times this hour. And most of them are going to be upset people or negative experiences. Or at least at, at best neutral. Only a handful of people will be very polite or very fun to speak with. And so people do all kinds of, you know, the sort of natural negative coping mechanisms. They dissociate. They, uh, they stop caring. And all, all of that's, you know, that's fine. You shouldn't feel bad about learning to handle a work by faking your smile. You don't have to be authentic. But when you're looking to get something out of work and you're looking to like set goals and cope with work, I think the main thing is to find the minimum. And I know I'm advocating being lazy, but what I mean by the minimum is uh, find the minimum emotional investment that is stable and secure in the work environment and then only give to that point so that when you're done with the work day, you have anything left for anything else. And I, I say that as someone who is a call center employee, that's extremely hard to do, but the goal and, and it is also the method is to simply let things go. And that is a real skill you can learn by just trying to let things go. I used to have serious anger problems when I was in my 20s. And eventually I got medication to help. But even before then, I, I managed a lot of that by thinking, oh, you know, this too shall pass. This isn't actually important. And I, what I would do is I'd say, I'm angry. This is really just cognitive behavioral therapy, by the way. You say, I'm angry. What should I do instead? And then you go do something else. And if you can at work, that's probably how you should handle it when work becomes stressful. I'm stressed. You abstract it. You set a new goal. I'm going to go stock this shelf. And then you go and stock the shelf. This assumes a lot of autonomy. And for some people, there may not be such an autonomy. Um, you have to play within the confines of what you're doing, or you need to decide that those confines are unacceptable and find another job. And that's, you know, that's a good strategy too. Sometimes don't work in an Amazon warehouse, right? Find another job if you can. Not always doable. Um, but, but essentially coping can be attained by learning to 
deflect the emotional reaction into something productive. And that sounds a little sociopathic. It probably is. But a good example of that would be if I'm being yelled at by somebody on a phone, then I would just wait for them to talk with the headset half off my head. And when they stopped, I would say, I'm sorry. The only thing I can do for you is the solution I've already offered. No other options are available. Because all the screaming and yelling they did was irrelevant. And I didn't need to sit there listening to it. I had, I had already come to a conclusion about the situation correctly. Because uh, I was good at my job. And like water off a duck's back, I... I tried to let those things slide past me. And sometimes it just meant, you know, turning down the volume, just letting the person ramble away while I waited for my turn to reassert that there's nothing else I can do. And that was a very effective coping strategy. I used that to, to work the same kind of job for eight years without uh, really breaking my soul. And a lot of people think, you know, call center work is the worst. So you can tell I was, I got pretty good at uh, brushing off stress. And I think other people can attempt that. The key thing though, when you're trying to set a goal or cope in this way with this kind of work is that you don't punish yourself when you fail. Uh, I can give you a better example. When people try to quit smoking, do you know, I, I, this number was told to me, this number may be fake, but I was told the average number of attempts to quit that a, the casual smoker went through was nine meaning that they would swear to quit nine different times and fail nine different times before they finally quit smoking for good. Because, you know, it's highly addictive. It's difficult to handle. If you don't choose to fail harder, if you don't freak out and beat yourself up and get angry with yourself and instead say, well, I lost, but I should try again, then you're going to be able to quit smoking better and you're going to be able to learn to cope with hard work better. Now, there, there are a lot of coping mechanisms that are less sort of prescribed beyond you know things like cognitive behavioral therapy, which is uh, work smarter, not harder, which is a very polite way of saying, don't do the job as listed. Do the job so that the people, the client, the boss thinks it's been done well enough. That's a pretty good way of coping if you can pull it off. Or just being lazy when you can. I mean, again, not a good strategy for impressing your boss, but... I think that kind of... of Coping is very real and sort of should be acknowledged in these conversations. There is an ancient proverb that I think is applicable. Boss, what is it? boss makes a dollar. I make a dime. That's why I crap on company time. That's right. That's right. It is, it is genuinely true that you should... If you can safely do so, you know, without endangering your, your livelihood, because for some people it is very precarious, uh, you know, get away with doing the bare minimum. 
Now, this isn't always true. Certain kinds of jobs have great autonomy or, or sort of very easy or mindless, and they directly reward productivity. Uh, these jobs are less common now than they used to be, but a good example of this was, uh, you know, my uncle shoveled coal back in the late 50s, early 60s. Now, obviously, a coal shoveler back then actually earned way more because he was able to to rent an apartment part time and save up money. Uh, or he he worked part time, rented an apartment, saved up money, and went to college. Now clearly, that's all impossible nowadays. Uh, so you can't really compare it. But one of the things that was notable was when he talked about shoveling coal. It was just the more coal you shoveled, the more money you made. And so it was really easy to feel great about shoveling a lot of coal because then you got a fat stack of dollars in your pocket. And if your work does that and it doesn't stress you out over much to, to seek that reward, then fantastic. Chase that reward, right? That's a, that's a very good strategy. And a lot of the people who have that attitude of, well, I love working hard, they really come from that background. They've had that kind of experience and that's why they feel so ready to, to sort of break, you know, bust their back. That's the term they use, bust their back for their boss or whatever. Now, that's not very applicable if no matter how hard you work, you're going to earn minimum wage. You know, just do whatever gets by in that situation. But if you have that kind of job, why not? If, you, if it makes you feel good or accomplished, then do it. A lot of it would depend on the work you have, though. Uh, but yeah, to split. So, so that's sort of the, the work half of coping. Um, outside of work, just life in general. Uh, dating websites really are the most common way that people find each other. Lower your expectations because it's not going to work most of the time. It's not going to work the vast majority of the time. Uh, approach finding somebody like that, like firing a shotgun. Just the more pellets there are, the more targets you hit, the more likely you are to actually score a kill. And uh, I mean, that's a terrible analogy, actually. <laughs> but but it works. It's The, the idea is volume, not anything else. Uh the OKCupid guy, back when he was in his heyday, did a lot of data analysis off of his website because he was very forthcoming with users about what he was going to collect and what he was going to do with that data. And he had these big, wonderful published blogs saying, here's what we learned. And what he learned is that people who found relationships on dating websites sent the most messages. If you attempt to contact 100 people, you're way more likely to find somebody on a dating website than you would otherwise. So that's for relationships. Just go ahead and use the dating website. Just don't beat yourself up when it fails. It's a volume game, not a quality game. Your personal quality would have to be the literal best in order to get the market effects that cause you to get easy successes, right? And and also it's worth noting that dating websites have algorithmic uh, drives to put the most beautiful people at the top of search results. Because that implies that everybody on there is very pretty, very sexy. 
right? And so uh, you can't just message that one person, get no response and think, well, I'm just ugly or I'm just boring. You're probably pretty damn interesting. You just need to find somebody who actually wants to talk about the things you want to talk about. One of the things that when I went on dating websites, I found was terrible was trying to pretend to care about things that I just didn't care about. It was a terrible strategy. None of those people ended up going on more than a couple of dates with me because nothing we talked about really had any authenticity. On the flip side, the, the you know my ex-girlfriend, ex thankfully, but my ex-girlfriend was someone who loved talking philosophy with me, which as you can probably tell from, from my rambling here, I love talking philosophy and rambling about ideological or intellectual subjects. It's a blast. Well, if you love listening to that kind of thing, then, hey, we might get along much better. And this, th that sort of um, accepting that you're not going to, to have great success, work with volume, only really aim for those things that are, or only hope for those things that are really going to be compatible, that'll get you through a lot of, of uh, failures so that you can reach that one success. And it, at, at a much lower stakes, the same sort of rules apply for friendships. Um, we don't even think of it as finding dates, but people perform a similar behavior online. I'm going to speak to the hypothetical audience here. Um, if you are online a lot, and I imagine you are because you're listening to a podcast, you've probably ended up in social circles that are broader than just the two or three people you really talk with a lot there. And that's fine. There have been people that you thought were pretty damn cool. And you messaged them and you were like, hey, what do you think about X? What do you think about Y? And you asked them questions about themselves. Or you said, I really like this thing. What do you think? You know, you, you commiserated on some particular subject that's the shared subject of that community or whatever you did. That is actually courting somebody for a friendship, in a sense. It's the same sort of behavior. It's just much lower stakes because you're not worried about sex. But that failure you saw was probably very common or is very common. Somebody doesn't want to, uh, you know, hang out with you that much or they don't feel very engaged and they don't respond much to what you're saying. Now, if you're in a fairly good place in life, you probably just shrug that off. No big deal. However, if you're having like rejection sensitivity and I did when I was younger, and that kind of thing made me sit there and inspect myself with a, uh, you know, a magnifying glass. What's wrong with me? Why wouldn't this person want us to speak to me? We, we have interests in the same things, don't we? And, and my attempts to force that person to engage with me were, of course, quite annoying. Right? And the person would drive even further away. And the solution for that, the coping solution with that was to, again, accept that it's going to be a volume thing. I will make friends with somebody if I'm just out there talking. I don't have to make friends with that one person. And similarly, uh, it was forgiving myself when I was rejected. I don't need to sit there and analyze whether I'm great or not. I just need to go and see if I can find somebody else. Now, now if you're an awful person, and God, you're not going to know that you're an awful person. But if you're an awful person and you've known that person, someone who is like a, a pathological liar or um, 
just feels compelled to insult people consistently, you know, seek help probably, but also, uh, don't just try to find friends that will either take your hassle or perform the same nonsense. Do try to, to keep your friends diverse online. That will help a lot with, with maintaining connections or finding new connections later. Uh, I think we've all sort of seen the, the echo chamber effect where someone gets so insulated in the, the negative aspects of a particular fandom or online culture that they're no longer capable of interacting with everybody else without seeing it through the lens of ideology. Um, for me, particularly, it would be as if I went to every conversation I heard in real life and said, but what about capitalism? Which, boy, I feel the urge because online I'm like, boy, what about capitalism? Huh? Don't like that, do you? Nor do I, right? Uh, but that's a really inappropriate way to handle sort of real life relationships with a lot of strangers. And by, by avoiding uh, only friends who are exactly like you and sort of keeping broad connections, you can avoid that kind of narrowness or, or accidental focusing that will alienate you from other people before you've even gotten to know them. Again, these are all very, very vague things. They're not really formulae. They're abstracts. They're abstractions, I should say, of the sort of, of paths we take in our social circles. And the particulars of any given situation will be so different that I would suggest... Uh, therapy, if available, it's not always available, if you feel like you can't solve it. Now, usually what the therapist will tell you will be similar to what I just said, which is don't blame yourself so much. Don't hyper-focus on negative things, so on and so forth. They'll probably tell you cognitive behavioral therapy. Again, abstract it, name the things you're seeing, right? Oh, I'm upset or I'm lonely or whatever. And then choose a short-term goal to take care of it. I'll do this one thing to remedy this slightly. And I won't be upset when it doesn't fully solve the problem. Again, similar techniques. But it can really help if somebody sits down and talks with you about your particular situation. But ultimately, what I'm advocating for is take the tools you have, what few they have. I know they're owned by corporations. But try to use them and try to find a handful of people to spend time with in person and online, especially if you can join a club. Oh, real life clubs are wonderful. Well, assuming that they don't have a tyrant, which some clubs do. Um, that one person who nobody likes, but is always there and tries to lord it over everybody else. But assuming that's not a problem, you know, people love going to, to gaming stores to play games or, or go to the, like the board game pubs to go play board games with people that they meet there, things like that. There's lots of options. Um, to sort of get out there if you want. Though, again, they cost money, and that's not always available to you. And all of these solutions and coping strategies, again, are about taking those freedoms that are available to you and using them because you can make your situation a little bit better. But none of them are the solutions to the deep problems, to the structural problems of the world. And so for those things... Well, 
think about politics. And I'm going to say progressive politics because that's what I believe in. But I'm not going to be able to convince everybody with, you know, two words that that's what they should believe in. But yeah, think about politics. It actually matters for this kind of thing. Maybe we won't be able to create the sort of change we need. Maybe we will. Times are always changing. The old are always dying and the young are always being born. And uh, no political situation and no state can remain the same forever. And so when it comes to whether or not police prevent you from being on the street or whether there are community centers for you to go and hang out or whether, you know, clubs or pubs or bars or board game places or whatever are available to you that you can go down to the library. Lots of people socialize at the library, by the way. All those things are politics. And so try to be interested in politics. Don't just check out. That's the message. And I think that's my coping strategies. But I don't think that takes care of like the great structural alienation that I think I feel or used to feel very terribly. And that's that it feels like there's only so much time ahead of us in the world. Climate change, incipient fascism, whatever thing you worry about. I don't know. What do you think? Yeah. Uh, we, you know, don't have, <laughs> we may not have our full lives ahead of us. So learning to cope now will pay dividends for the, you know, for the very short future. Well, I, some, for many of us, we do have our whole lives ahead of us, but I, I, do, I think there's several things that need to be discussed when it comes to climate change and, and sort of the long scales of history. Almost nobody lived in an era of actual peace. If you go look at this day in history, many of us do have our lives ahead of us. But when it comes to the long scales of history, when it comes to uh, climate change or wars or uh, political shifts like, you know, fascism or Nazism or, or anything like that, one has to remember that there was no period in history which was free of those influences or those terrible events. If you look at a this day in history, you can find something on every day of every year somewhere that was tragic or terrible or should have been better handled by people in authority. And what we're facing now is sort of the the environmental scale version of that, a wicked, a, a wicked problem, as they say, a problem that has only one shot at being solved, that has multiple competing solutions and whichever solution you choose prevents you from trying any of the others. And finally, the global warming in particular, or climate change, whatever you want to call it, that one in particular has an extremely bad thing where all solutions are also painful. And so no solution makes the short term better. And that's why, uh, and, and everyone's being made aware of this. That's why it's so upsetting, particularly right now, and what people think is special about the period we're in. And it is somewhat special. It's somewhat unique. But it is not, first off, the end of the world. That's a great way to get attention, right? 
it may be the end of civilization as we know it, which for many people is the end of the world effectively. And for some people, it will absolutely kill them if civilization doesn't remain as is. But what I mean by that is, let's say peak oil happens and fuel prices fly out of control and food becomes wildly expensive and there's mass poverty and human migration due to sea level change and constant natural disasters. And a lot of the supply chains that we rely upon to continue the exchange of goods and services falter and stop. That can happen and probably will eventually happen sooner or later. If not in this era, then in some other disaster and some other future age. It happened once already in the Bronze Age collapse. They had deep specialization and very, very strong shipping across these uh, Bronze Age civilizations. And the moment that there was a drought, it was a very nasty drought, a 30-year drought, the migrations of people, what they called the sea people, which we're still trying to figure out who they are. By the way, I say that and you can probably Google it and lo and behold, someone's finally figured it out. Watch that be the case. But um, the sea people came, conquered a bunch of places, a bunch of states fell apart. Uh, You know, kingdoms were destroyed, mass death. And then humans rose up and built new kingdoms in those places everywhere. There was no place that truly died down to nothing just because civilization fell apart. Did a lot of people die? Yes. But my point is that the stakes are not everything. The stakes are only a lot of things. And that's a pretty severe difference for a lot of people emotionally. Because when we talk about like, oh, well, you know, there's going to be all these trigger conditions and there's going to be a clathrate methane, a methane clathrate gun and we're all going to die in a 12-year hyper-global warming event, and then there's going to be runaway global warming, and there's going to be so much extra water in the atmosphere that it'll be a feedback cycle, and the Earth will become like Venus itself. Is an actual scenario that people have suggested, right? It's not going to happen. We've had similar levels of both methane and carbon release in the past. It was Carnian in geology. And what happened was the Carnian pluvial event, which was 2 million years of heavy storms, basically. Everywhere that it could rain, it did for, you know, most of the year, every year for 2 million years. That was caused by the Siberian traps, or maybe it was the Deccan traps, I can't remember which one, uh, dumping out CO2 at like 15 times the rate that industrial civilization does. (laughs) Because essentially, like this giant gash across Siberia or India, depending on which of the two it was, I should actually look this up before I say these kind of things. But it was it was belching carbon dioxide in vast amounts from constant volcanism for, again, the full two million years. It killed off a huge number of species. A lot of, of pre-dinosaur reptiles died away and dinosaurs ended up taking their place, if I remember correctly. So it was not a small thing, right? This terrible disaster. But it didn't end the world. The stakes are not the earth itself. We are not that powerful. And taking that first step back, that weight off, that true 
apocalypse that we fear takes a lot of the pain away. Because for, for me at least, and I, I'm speaking very strongly about my own personal experiences. So if somebody's like, what is she talking about? She's insane. Well, you know, that's because this is how I felt about it. Uh, but I used to worry so much that we were going to leave the earth barren and that each of us was contributing to like the genocide of all futures by just existing, by creating a carbon footprint. And recognizing that I wasn't going to be capable of ending the world by existing, nor was our species, took that weight away. It no longer became a moral imperative to consider my my potential death in order to save a, a future that hadn't happened yet. It became okay for me to live and to do the things I had to do in my daily life to survive, which means making garbage, driving a car, using electricity with, you know, inefficient devices. I, I took the pressure of personal responsibility off myself and no longer did every action in my daily life feel like a crime or a guilt-ridden, uh, you know, sin. I can't think of a better word for it, a sin. So that, that was one big part of it. Another part was um, recognizing that there's no final victory. When it comes to problems of this difficult sort, and it's not just climate change, you can think of war, of poverty, of eating food every day as all fitting into the same sort of reality where you can't win. You can't eat a meal so big that you never have to eat a meal again unless that meal happens to kill you. <laughs> um, you can't distribute money so fairly that poverty can never come into being again. You can't design a government so well that tyranny will never take hold again. You can't find a peace so stable that there will never be another war. And you can't find a way of living or a structure of society that doesn't change the environment around it in an irreversible way and thus itself suffer irreversible change eventually. It's not possible. You can prevent great disaster in all of those situations by being conscientious and by continuing to apply at the scale of the problem solutions. By, I mentioned that at the scale of the problem because I don't want you to think that you personally need to be responsible for climate change. Your state needs to be responsible for climate change, your governments, because that's the scale of the problem. It's mostly corporations, governments that are doing the polluting. So uh, that's neither here nor there. I just wanted to make the point that just because these things are not solvable doesn't mean you despair and give up. You don't stop eating dinner every day because you can't eat the final dinner. You don't give up on charity or fail harder with regard to like fair taxation systems because people are still poor or fall into poverty. You don't give up on peace because there are wars and you don't stop trying to make things better 
with regard to the climate, even as the climate fails around you. And if you accept that you can set that goal for yourself in the attempt, even though you can never win, that itself can be a victory. And I think that's what people do when they say, you know, go work volunteer work for poverty or they promote peace politically or they, tr- they campaign or protest for climate change measures by their states. Whether or not it works by going and doing something about it at all, they feel better about it. And if you don't have the time or the emotional wherewithal to do those kind of things, then you can forgive yourself for not doing them. And that too can be a kind of coping with the ongoing disaster. There is no degree of upset you will ever feel that will stop climate change. There is no degree of guilt that you could feel which will save the world. There is no hope for redemption that can change the course of history. You will add your tiny pebble into the great flow and either we'll build a causeway out of all these cast stones and find a way to the other side or we'll be swept away. And you can't decide that with what you do. You just make your little contribution. And accepting that is liberating. And is maybe the the primary coping strategy for all of the problems that we've talked about here. It's acceptance. Not giving up. Because acceptance is not saying that things should be as they are or will remain as they are but rather accepting that you can never find a final victory in things. So, I think when we're living up to ecological collapse like this, when we're facing down what may be limited time for many of us, because there may be a famine coming someday for a large portion of the population, who knows? History can be very bad and very cruel. All you can do is sort of stop worrying about that 10-year disaster and say, what can I do today to make the situation better for myself right now? And if the answer is nothing, then let it go for today. If your only power is to vote, then go vote. But if you can't even do that, you can accept that. You don't have to make the state of the world your personal. Actually, let me rephrase that. You don't have to make the state of the world a mirror in you. You don't have to suffer because the world is suffering. And you don't need to feel guilty for enjoying good things. In fact, actually, I do want to mention one last thing. And then I'll stop rambling on this subject. Uh, There's a thing called a gratitude journal. And it sounds like new age horse shit and a gratitude journal is basically going in every every other day or every day usually it's every other day every third day and writing down the things you're thankful for and it's a very brief list usually i did it for a while and it really helped i was writing down things like coffee video games my cats writing 
just a few things. It only takes a few minutes. But the point was to recontextualize those things because there are worlds in which I wouldn't have had them. Right? I wrote down air conditioning one time. I'm like, wow. I live in an era with air conditioning. There's ice cubes in my freezer. Refrigeration is a thing. It didn't exist until 150 years ago at best. And I can take advantage of that now and just freely have ice water whenever I want. So for like a week, I was making myself glasses of ice water all the time. Like, look at this. I'm a a fucking queen. I'm royalty. It's mine. Uh... And that gratitude really helped. Like coffee? Think about what wealth. I have a cup of coffee every morning shipped from across the world. I can make a sandwich for the cost of an hour's worth of labor that's been shipped from five continents to be built. I, I I live like royalty for many eras. And letting myself enjoy that and having gratitude for it was also really helpful. Changing my perspective in the opposite direction. Instead of despairing over the negative things I've done or the things I'm doing simply by existing, I celebrated those things I was granted by living at this time in this world. I get to play video games. Video games are some of the most entertaining things ever invented. People get plainly addicted to them. They're so fun, right? I get to live in that era. Why am I angry about that? Social media, the internet, I know more than any academic, well, almost any academic, about random trivial bullshit than somebody in the 1940s would have. They would have only really known their specialty. Because I can just look it up on the internet and sort of develop this patchwork of, of thoughts and ideas about the world. It's why I can sit here and off the cuff give these long, complicated rambles, which I, I know I've really talked over poor Stoutfish here, uh, but I hope that I hope that's what you wanted, buddy, is me to sort of just launch into the rambles and let them go. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's, but, it's been pretty but my easy point for is me. That, this is great. <laughs> uh, wow. I've actually forgotten my point, haven't I? Gratitude is good. C- coping is is a mixture not of just letting things go, but of also enjoying the things you have. In any case, today I can eat good food. Tomorrow I'll watch movies with friends and have wine. Those are wonderful things. If 30 years from now, as an old woman, I die from famine, and that's sort of my historical marker, that will be a tragedy but it will be the wrong memory that the future holds because I'll have spent most of my life eating well, enjoying television and books and games and hanging out with friends online, making the most of this world that I had with what I have, you know, the, the mental tools I have to do it with. And so you invite me to talk about this and what do I do? I hop on and I talk about it for, you know, two whole hours or whatever, because yeah, it's not been that long, but you know what I'm saying? I I wear my voice out in front of a microphone because (laughs) this is fun. This is something I can do. And, uh, you know, I'm grateful to have done it. So alienation and getting around alienation for me 
is a mixture of coping with the restrictions of the world and a mixture of finding and, and enjoying the things that I do manage to get. And um, that's a very vague goal and hardly a prescription for solving anything. But I, I think you might agree, but maybe you won't. As I grew up, that was what I discovered was the only way. Because otherwise, I could just have lived in despair until I died. And that would have done nothing good for me. It truly is <laughs> brightest before dusk. A classic quote. I don't even know. Is it? I don't even know if that's the actual quote. It's the reverse. I it's see. darkest before dawn, but now yeah, it's brightest no, before I mean, dusk. Yeah. It is pretty good. In certain ways. I definitely live after the great period of the 20th century where everyone had it wonderfully. My dad's a carpenter and my mother is a goat herder and they own three homes. I'm a, a, a vendor manager for an escalations team with multiple reports dealing in routinely vast amounts of money. And I won't give any more detail than that because, you know, it's my work. But nevertheless, I make next to nothing compared to what they did because I was born into a worse era, an era of greater inequality. Where the same, where same or greater labor was worth less somehow. So, sometimes that can be upsetting, and I can make myself depressed. But no, I have two cats. I have ice water. I have coffee. Right, things are good. Dang, if only I'd lived in the 1960s, everything would be swell. (laughs) Thanks. Hey, there's, I have one, I have one good benefit for you. You're not lead poisoned. Uh, When were you born? Roughly a year. Doesn't have to be exact. Okay. Yeah. You were born after the lead poisoning. Hooray. You're not lead poisoned. Uh, You know, leaded gasoline had been rolled out (laughs) all over the Americas at that point. And uh, anybody born basically after 82 but especially if you were born in the 90s, has, neg- has well, not negligible, there's no safe level of lead, but has less lead poisoning than someone born before that period, who usually has significant lead poisoning. Um, not enough to be entirely noticeable, it's not like acute, but essentially everybody born before that era has chronic lead poisoning of a real degree. Um, and the funniest part is that it probably correlates to like the crime rate or something ridiculous like that. So... Uh, you know, being born in the 1960s was nice in a lot of ways, but boy, sure, howdy, did they huff a lot of lead fumes by accident. Uh, and that was not good. That was bad for everybody. And so, yeah, you, you can look at that one bright side, right? There's less lead in you. It's not so bad. <laughs> Actually, so this is a lot nicer environmentally now than it was in certain ways. I mean, obviously, the climate change, especially this year, I'm sure people will if they look back on this retrospectively, be amazed at the temperatures that were seen in the subarctic regions and the far north. 
we're talking Portland at 116 degrees Fahrenheit. I don't even know what that is Celsius, but it's high. Um, and yet it's, there's less smog now. There's less lead in the environment. Water is definitely cleaner in many, many, many places. Water is cleaner. Uh, yeah, exactly. Our sewage system is uh, yeah, pretty good. Exactly. We have trash collection. Exactly. Exactly. I think Land there's a lot of good things out there still. I mean, that's how you have to see civilization. Civilization is a mass thing. It's not any individual's design. It's sort of what happened when all these people interacted with each other day in and day out for centuries. There were people in power who put bad fingers on scales and tilted things the wrong way. And we should do things in politics to reverse that. And it's all outside the, you know, sort of scope of this discussion. But despite all that, it's mostly out of our control. And yet it's still pretty good right now. And I'll take it. I'll take that while I have it. I'll enjoy it while I got it. Anyways, uh, I, I pass this back over to you to, to chat now. I know I've, I've ranted about every single subject I could think of related to alienation and, and sort of the apocalypse, but hopefully that covered all the, the notes you wanted to hit. Yeah, <laughs> uh, definitely have a full podcast here. <laughs> uh, yeah, um, no, I, you know, I think this being a platform for you to speak is uh, fantastic. I'm sure there's... A dozen, a, a dozen, dozen is worth this, the so time. I'm excited. <laughs> I have, I'm writing a book, right? And I'll be done in two years, probably with all the drafts. And then I'll be shopping it around. Maybe somebody will buy it and I'll get a thousand readers. Maybe no publisher will. And I'll put it online. But if I get even a hundred readers, then I'll be happy with the amount of effort I put into the hobby. And I think for, you know, a podcast where we just spend a couple hours chatting or whatever, a dozen, that's good. Especially if they came away entertained or enlightened in any way. I hope you do. Yep. But we'll see what happens. All right. Uh, bonus segment. Oh, boy. Uh, this may not be included yes. in the podcast. Uh, Liz. <laughs> um, so... I've had a pretty alienating yes. experience uh, applying for jobs recently, and I was wondering if you could, uh, you know, sit and listen to okay, me. Go for it. Perhaps you could help me cope with this situation. So, I applied for a job to become a Taco Bell manager. Uh, Seventeen dollars an hour. Right. You know, wages have been going up in California recently. Uh, lots of places hiring. They're not hiring me for some reason. <laughs> And uh, so I show up there. It's an in-person interview, walk-ins. Um, so I walk in. I'm confused. I don't know what to do. A uh, lady at the counter, she sees me, um, and she asks me what I would wish to order. And uh, this upsets me because it means to me that it's not clear that I'm here for an interview, that I look unprofessional. So I awkwardly tell her, oh, no, I'm here for an interview. So she you know, she gives me like a strange look. Uh, right. Uh, and, you know, I'm pretty self-conscious. So I go sit down. 
you know, she hands me a pen and a form and the form is like a questionnaire that like, how would you respond in these situations? And I think I have a pretty good, uh, you know, sort of common sense. Mm -hmm. I have experience sort of de-escalating situations. So I think I'm doing pretty well. And then, uh, or I would do pretty well. And then I open up my pen and my pen collapses into multiple pieces. And I think to myself, I don't want to call that lady over. She just went back to the counter. Uh, I don't want her to, you know, look down on me again. That would shatter my confidence. So I think, you know what? I'm going to be resourceful. I'm going to use the ink from uh, the pen and mark my answers with a broken pen. It will be so impressive when... (laughs) the person interviewing me comes so i start marking some answers um uh the pen starts to increase its uh ink flow oh no and it all gushes out at once so so now my my paper the table and my hands are covered in ink and i'm sort of sitting there in stunned silence and i you know i i wait not knowing what to do and uh the lady at the counter she comes around <laughs> and she asks for my paper and she sees what's happens and you know she <laughs> takes it away from me and asks why i don't uh why i didn't you know ask for another pen and then right after that the interview lady comes and so uh she has some papers in her hands and she can't put the papers right in front of me oh no because there's a puddle of ink on the table so she has to sit like across from me. And uh, so I'm sitting there. I got ink all over my hands and on the table. And, uh, <laughs> you know, she asked me some questions. She, uh, she asks, uh, uh, what makes me uh, uh, unique and qualified as an individual? And I say, uh, there's nothing really special about oh, me. I'm just a normal person. That's, here not, for an that's not the angle to take, but I appreciate the honesty. Uh, always lie when that question comes up but we'll talk about it in a minute <laughs> so uh, so i basically like stumbled through the questions you know like they got these little colored uh um papers and they ask you questions based off that and um you know and i never got a call back so okay so first off first off when for, a disaster uh... happens <laughs> call attention to it because it shows ownership Ownership is one of those nebulous things. What they really mean is that they can trust you to either handle or flag a problem immediately, right? That's what ownership means. So ownership is like, oh, hey, this pin just broke. It doesn't matter how far into the disaster you actually are. You pretend it just broke and that you're owning it immediately, right? Um. That's the first thing to do for any, any kind of disaster like that because it shows uh, that you are in control and that you will not let something proceed to worse conditions, right? Uh, so even like when you don't know the answer to a question, fill out everything else, then go, all right, I filled out everything else. I only have one quick question. This here I didn't understand. Could you quickly explain it? Right, and then let them explain that thing so you can fill in that last little tidbit or whatever. The goal of all of this is not to be uh, amazing or to prevent yourself from ever having disasters because there's an analog for an exploding pin everywhere in the world. Something is going to go wrong. Rather, it's 
ownership. Hey, this is happening. What can we do? The second aspect of that, though, is to not apologize or at least not apologize over much. It's not your fault that a pen exploded. It's not your fault that you missed something when you were supposed to be paying attention. It's not your fault unless you admit it is in many cases because the other person wasn't paying attention either. So if you start by saying, I'm sorry, I wasn't paying attention. I I promise I'll do better because you're anticipating like being punished. You literally told them I'm bad at the job or I'm going to be bad at this job. And, uh, and I'm, I'm really sorry about it. What you should do is approach that situation as, Hey, this happened. Here's what I plan to do about it. And then you explain what you think will solve the problem. Now, clearly you can't do this every single time, but that strategy will convince the boss or the interviewer or whatever that they don't have to worry about it. You already have ideas for what you want to do. If, if they find that you did something wrong and call you out on it, you'll just be like, oh yeah, okay, I'll fix that by doing this. They will love that because you're so solutions oriented. It's not their problem. And this comes to the third point, because in a job, what your boss cares about after productivity, of course, which is, you know, getting the job done after that is how much work is it to work with this employee? Employees that don't require much work are wonderful to work with. This doesn't mean that you don't ask them questions. It means that you ask them directed questions that show that you are thinking about the thing already and just seeking direction, right? So instead of saying, I don't know what to do here, you say, hey, I wanted to do X. Is that correct? Even if X is just made up nonsense, right? And they'll be like, no, no, don't do X, do Y. Now try to make sure your X, your, your made up reason is pretty good. Probably right. Because that way many times they'll just be like, yeah, that's correct. Go ahead and do that. Heck, half the time that boss won't even be paying attention and they shouldn't have said yes, but it's no longer your problem because they said yes. Just write it down somewhere. If, if there's notes or anything like that, especially. My point about this is when you don't apologize, when you own it immediately, and when you come with solutions in hand, then you are the easiest person to manage and the boss can be lazy and you can be autonomous. You won't have to be micromanaged and all that's good for your mental health. And it's good for the comfort of the person who has power over you and get to some degree, making them comfortable makes your life easier as well. Right? Lastly, at the opposite direction, you can't be a mat. You can't be a doormat. So when somebody like asks something unreasonable, you don't just say, yes, sir, hop into it, sir. Right? Because that strategy will just get everything heaped on your plate. Metaphorically speaking, what you should do is say, this is what I'm currently doing. I don't think I have time except to do X. Right. Or, uh, that seems like something that would, I would need training in or, Oh, isn't that blank's job to do that? Right. To push back gently, 
they will usually force you to do the extra work anyways because that's what bosses usually do. But they will have had friction in doing so. And the next time that they have a nonsense task to try to delegate out, they just won't come to you as easily or as readily. And that's to your benefit. It's not that you were a headache. You didn't throw a fit. You didn't say, I won't do it, boss. Right? What you did was you showed that there's a consequence for asking you to do things outside of your normal workload. And that tiny little change makes the relationship much more equal and will prevent you from, from the doormat scenario. A lot of people, especially in like tax offices, like accountants offices, I knew somebody who went to work as an accountant and ended up working 17 hour days for the first year because everybody who offered a project got a yes. And there's way more work in those places than there is people to do it. And she sort of said no. Well, that's what I'm saying here is you should say no sometimes, right? It's way outside of the normal work. Don't let it become the new normal. You don't have to throw a fit. You just have to throw a flag saying this doesn't look like I'm what I'm supposed to be doing. And you can do it anyways. But you kind of push the ex standard that it's not going to be every single time. That they... That's a very subtle thing, requires a lot of experience and practice, and you won't get it right the first time or every time. But uh, when there's a mess, laugh about it. Not in a way that shows that it's, you don't want to sort of contextualize it as this is unimportant. You need to recognize the direness of it and seem at ease with, under, with accepting it. And that's how you can laugh about it. You may not actually literally laugh, but... Uh, a good example of that was one time we had an employee who was stealing hours. Now that's a term that's often over abused, but they had worked uh, like 30 something hours without taking a single phone call in a job where you're supposed to take like six phone calls an hour. So we'd paid them nearly a week's worth of wages for zero work and earn, they've earned, they'd earned us nothing. And it was actually like in the narrow sort of margins of telecoms, it was a huge disaster, right? But we had to pay the person because they were on the clock. So this person was on my team and this is a huge disaster. And when I got into the meeting with the boss, I'm like, well, I wasn't looking for somebody that was so audacious as this, but I will be now. And they were like, yeah, buddy, you will be. I was like, I know I will. Uh, this is the most extreme wage theft I've seen, or sorry, not wage theft, uh, hours theft I've seen in this company's history. Do you know of anybody that's done anything even remotely close? And our boss was like, well, one time somebody got away with like about six hours worth of sitting there before somebody figured it out. But, uh, to be fair, this isn't entirely on you because we have coverage every single day and they should have figured out that this person wasn't taking phone calls. So it's kind of on everybody. And I'm like, yeah, that makes sense. But I still would have rather have seen it and taken care of it before it got to this point. I'm just glad that somebody found it at all because it's crazy. Now, you see how this, this way of me talking about it both takes ownership of it. Oh, man, I wish I really could have done something about it. Uh, sets it up, sort of pitches the softball to him so that he can bat it back saying, well, it's not entirely your fault, right? We have people whose job is to monitor phones that they didn't notice this, which is true. 
if he hadn't mentioned that, I would have said, hey, why didn't coverage notice this? I'm really confused, right? Coverage being the person that was doing the, the phone coverage. And hopefully the response would have been, well, I don't know. And, and I would have changed their opinion of the situation. So for your ink, your spilled ink, I would have been like, hey, this pen exploded on me. Sorry. Let's, can we sit at another table? And, you know, oh, yeah, sure. What happened? Oh, I pressed it down on the paper. About halfway through, boosh, ink everywhere. I've never seen anything like it. But as you can tell, it's a mess. I'm going to be washing it off for hours, I'm sure. Right? And they'll laugh a little bit about it, and then it'll no longer be a problem. It'll be a problem for a future employee to be delegated to clean up the board ink pool. But you'll have, you'll have placed it off to something else. And you'll have taken care of the situation and have engaged the person. And that's how you could have sort of spun that, right? To take the, the comedy of it and be like, mm, I don't know how it happened. Boy, is it bad. And, and say, hey, can we sit over there for that reason? And we're like, oh, yeah, of course. Let's go sit over here. Um, a lot of this does require you to be fairly quick-witted on your feet about it. And that's not a thing that's natural. Actually, it's a learned technique. So a lot of this will be learned over time while applying for jobs or for, while working with bosses. Um, but it is a, a skill you can learn. And then the last thing I think that would be applicable to your situation, you mentioned the question, uh, why do you think you would be special in this job or some, anything like that? What are your weak qualities? What are your best qualities? Whatever silly questions they have like that. First off, you don't know what question's coming. So you may not have any idea of what you're going to say. Respond, ooh, that's a good question. Right? Start with that. One, this buys you a shitload of time and makes you look really engaged. And it, you think, okay, the person's done a good question. You know, the, the person is doing good at their interviewing because they've asked a hard question, right? This is a very, very, like, this is a, a lie so routine that I literally use it all over the place. That's a good question, right? Um, it's not even really a lie because usually they are good questions if you understand what they're looking for, which is not an exact answer, but rather your ability to creatively respond to the social situation, right? So when somebody asks, what are your worst qualities, right? If you say actual terrible qualities, you won't get hired, of course. I'm argumentative. Uh, I tend to be really lazy and uh, I like to browse the internet at all hours on my phone, right? You're not getting hired. Uh, but if you say like the ironic, like I work too hard, I'm such a hard worker. It's just so, like I can't relax sometimes, right? They'll think you're bullshitting and they won't think of anything good of that either. So what you need to do is not answer the question directly, but tell a story. And even you told a good story a minute ago, so you can tell a good story again. Uh, and maybe you use this story, but you tell a different ending, right? You're like, oh, the, I was there. I pressed the pen down. The head of the pen shot up into the body and it started gushing ink. I was blown away. There was ink all over the table, ink all over my hands. It was a nightmare. I, the, I tried to go speak to the woman. She was clearly very busy. 
So I, instead of bothering her, I waited for the interviewer to arrive. When the interviewer came, I was like, hey, this pen exploded. Can we sit over at that other seat? And they said, sure. We ended up having a pretty good conversation. But, uh, you know, now that I reflect back on it, I think that, that I should have gone ahead and, and been more direct. I was too accommodating. I should have been more direct and just gone and talked to that lady so that there wasn't time for the ink to flow everywhere. That would have been a better way of handling it. So if I have a weakness, I think my weakness is that sometimes I'm not assertive enough. Not that I won't let the problem, you know, not that I won't handle the problem, but I, th I think I should have done better that time. Now see how in that story I made up, there was a, a bit where you definitely took care of it later. When the other person came, you're like, hey, can we move tables? But you identified a weakness that you should have been more assertive. And then you've concluded, as the story is moral, that you should be a more assertive person in the future. And that's, you've answered the question, what's a weakness? Well, I'm not assertive. I'm not assertive. Sorry. I'm not assertive enough. You can cut out the nonsense there. And that, that will handle it for most interviewers handful of them will ask, well, what other qualities? In which case, some of the better sort of abstract like listables is uh, sometimes easily distracted when a lot of things are demanding my attention. Right? I mean, that's a really good answer. It's something everybody relates to. It's, act, it's not actually a problem. It's really blaming the situation around you, right? Yeah. But it implies that if you were better, you would somehow magically get ignore all distractions when people are asking for your attention, right? Again, if you can tell a whole story, like a little two-minute story, do so. Storytelling is powerful in interviews, so long, of course, as it looks like the person is engaged. Now, some people are doing like five-minute interviews, right? They're in a great deal of hurry. It's going to be pretty obvious pretty fast. Uh, for that kind of thing, if somebody says, what are your worst qualities? And uh, you need to say something like, uh, that's a good question. I think I would like some guidance on payroll. I don't think I'm very good at like payroll standards, right? So, so for example, uh, what do I do if somebody hasn't clocked in on time, right? Do I, do I need to make sure that I understand how to adjust it or that it should be adjusted? Uh, I'm sure we could figure that out in any kind of training though, you know, and you just, just say something hyper-specific about business. And then you move on. And, and you didn't actually say I'm a bad person. You just said, wow, I, I failed at this one thing. I think I should have done better. And that one trick will get you through so many of those trick questions. Or you can tell stories like, what, what do you, when was the time that you showed leadership? Just make up a story. Say I had a report. They were doing really badly. Or, you know, if you don't have a job that you can go to, say like, oh, you know, back in college, um, I had a senior seminar in English and 
there was a group project. We had about a month to parse a bunch of syntax, a bunch of like, you know, grammar. And during that, essentially some of the people went off and partied and I was looking at like a 48 hour crunch to get it done in time. And I realized that I hadn't actually taken all of the necessary steps to make sure that that was the only reasonable thing to do. So I got the people that were working on it. Of the four, I got two of them. We went to the professor's office hours and we were like, hey, two of our people have not been very helpful on this and we're reaching a crunch. Is there something we can do that's a little more focused? Or, or less text. And once we've done that, we can present that for our grade and not worry about those other, other two people. And the professor was like, yeah, sure. This seems fair to me. So we did like a quarter length version of the, of the parsing and did a little, you know, meta analysis of the data and did a little presentation and actually got to sleep at night leading up to the final presentation instead of crunching for 48 hours and also probably ensured a better grade for myself and the other two compared to whatever product we would have pushed out with a crunch. Uh, because I, I took initiative. Now, do you think that story is real or do you think I just made that up right now? Yeah, I definitely made that up right now. You definitely but made it's, that up. But it takes little bits from things I remember or knew about. And it's a story about leadership. And it also shows, what it really shows is not that I've had like great trials and tribulations as a leader, but that in a scenario in which thinking outside of, ah, oh, just slam my head against it, and like taking control of the situation are actual solutions. I went and took control of the situation. I came up with solutions. And that can, can you know, that sort of storytelling can convince somebody that you'll be a great leader, even if you have no leadership experience on your resume. Because all interviews are ultimately social tests more than anything else. They're giving the interview for the things that they care about in terms of like, you know, credentials and other such, they'll, they'll look at your resume if they care, right? They'll probably have filtered that out or, or it's irrelevant. You know, recruitment for whatever company really needs to speak with X number of people. So it doesn't matter. What matters is that the interviewer comes away thinking, wow, that person knows what they're doing, or that person's really competent, or that person's confident, or that person is thoughtful. Whatever positive you end up creating out of the stories is good. It's the memorability and the idea that you would be pleasant to work with that will sell you above and beyond just the accreditation. Now, if you do have specific accomplishments which are real, call them out, right? Always do that because that's, where, that's very powerful. If you can be like, I'm an award winner in hog farming, right? And you genuinely have, ride that hog, right? Get all the power you can out of that. That's a very strange metaphor, but yeah. <laughs> uh, Man, that was a great story about spilling the ink. I'm sorry. That is wild. That is, 
That is a story you're going to love later, right? That is a great, <laughs> like 10 years from now, you're going to be like, damn, I had this one time. Let me tell you about it. And over a cider or something, someone's going to be laughing as you just like sat there and stared at this like inky dis- disaster staining into everything and just like frozen like a deer in headlights. Like, what do I even do? I'm trying to be polite, but everything is ruined. Well, ultimately, you know, I've given you some advice on how to handle that kind of situation in the future and about how to handle those conversations in the future. I think the takeaway about you should not be that you're an inherently bad person that couldn't like control a Taco Bell. You were bad at an interview. And as you can tell from me having all these like tips and tricks and just calling it stories and lies, I think you can get really good at interviews. Uh, And as long as you don't flat out lie about your accomplishments, like your ability, you know, you say, oh, well, I'm, I can type a thousand words a minute and ha- can organize three spreadsheets at the same time, right? And that, then somebody asks you to do those things and you can't, then you're toast, right? But excluding that situation, when you're just talking about yourself, all you really need to do is relate to the interviewer that you're capable of doing the work and that you'll be easy to work with. And everything else is just details. So... You know, learn to be a better interviewer, but don't go, damn, I, Stoutfish, am bad and not deserving of this work. Like, it's a, it's work. Mediocrity is fine. But in an interview, salesmanship is key. I think that's uh, that was a fantastic uh, segment. Fantastic advice! Wow, uh, really makes me rethink uh, yeah, uh, what it's, is possible well, in an interview. You had a certain mindset of what's acceptable. They're in control. They'll have a system. You'll go through it. You'll be judged, and that's how they present it, right? So it's easy to fall into that myth. What I'm saying is that right. you are can you can approach it like a, a human relationship. Really. It's a brief fleeting one, but I also really think it's interesting how um there's a this duality in which we talk about how uh you have to accept you have no control when it comes to these uh social structures, but in employment you always have you benefit a lot from presenting uh, right. Someone who's always accepts the reality that there's not control, but is constantly aware of this and desiring to be better at uh, work or whatever. I mean, honestly, unless you have a very, very overbearing boss, most of them don't care. What will matter is that the X number hits Y metric because they're measuring it somehow. And that when they go to look at things, things look in order. And if those things are being done... In the, in the meanwhile, you know, the inmates run the asylum. The employees are doing the work. And they're not being micromanaged if things are going well. Now, again, some jobs are very, very awful. And technology has made some of these things way crueler than they used to be, right? Things that track like a webcam and a motion tracker. So if you're not typing... Or in sitting in front of the computer, you don't earn money for X job, right? That stuff is cruel. Probably needs to be illegal. 
and will be, you know, almost certainly the subject of future debates about privacy in politics. You know, future labor disputes and laws will be written about that kind of thing. So, I, I, you know, the, all this advice is not universal in any sense. Your ability to talk your way uh, doesn't matter if you're harvesting vegetables. And it doesn't matter if uh, you're being monitored and measured in every second by a machine. But not every job is like that. And so, and not every interview is like that. And you can present a lot in salesmanship of the self. Yeah. Anyways, I like to, to sort of encapsulate these things because a lot of people have had experiences that violate this advice that, sh that obviate it, make it irrelevant. And I just want to acknowledge that because I think otherwise advice can feel hollow or, or overbroad when it's actually specific to a culture and a time. In a hundred years, this advice will be useless. And a hundred years ago, it would have also been useless. There's a reason grandpas were like, well, I just went down there and asked for a job and they gave it to me, which is like effectively impossible today, right? Because there was a different cultural norm. But for now, at least, this is good advice. Well, thank you so much for... <laughs> this uh, two hour long well, I hope this is a, a fun first episode <laughs> obviously uh, you're the actual host and I you literally just let me onto the field to go wondering wherever I went and I appreciate that um, I hope that in the future you have more structured guests uh, but I I am a hyperactive person that ADHD and that coffee right and uh, I like to put together webs of ideas in any case, thank you. I appreciate being here. And that was episode one of the podcast. I would like to thank my guest, Lizzie. You can find future episodes of the podcast on pretty much any podcast platform. You can check out at Brightest Before Dusk Pod on Twitter, or email me at Brightest Before Dusk Pod at gmail.com. If you want to ask questions, or even if you want if you want to request to be a guest on a podcast, this podcast is a small project. I've had a lot of fun putting it together. This episode was very lecture heavy. I don't have a concrete formula for the podcast. Kind of seeing what happens. I've got a bonus episode planned, and then an episode on finance. So stick around.